Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October the 10th, 2012, and this is episode 995 of the Survival Podcast. I got a great interview for you guys today. Many of you will know this, uh, this lady that I have waiting to uh, come on the line with us, Jackie Clay well-known as a long-term writer for Backwoods Home Magazine. We'll have her on in just a moment. Before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, J.M. Bullion. You know, I, I really worked hard to find you guys a great uh, place to buy silver and gold where you could buy silver and gold at a lower price than just about anywhere online and a place where you would be able to know you were giving your business to people you could trust. And it took a lot of searching to find JM and to find somebody that I could go look up, you know, their prices comparing to big silver houses like Atmex and actually have them uh, at a better price uh, per unit. And they're a great company. They do a discount on large purchases for the MSB, but their pricing is great for everyone. Right now, due to kind of a disagreement with the people they had their merchant account with, they are only taking payment by check. But that doesn't really change anything. You still get a great purchase price. And uh, I talked to uh, the owner yesterday. He said they're looking at a week or two, and they'll have their merchant account uh, back, uh, a different uh, provider for their merchant account. With silver and gold, they have to be very careful uh, with merchant accounts. I asked him why he couldn't take PayPal, and he said, and as soon as he said it, I understood that it's just way too easy for somebody to buy something through PayPal and then claim they never received it, and PayPal almost always sides with the buyer, and it's too big of a risk for them in the industry that they're in with the margins you operate at. So it'll be a bit before they get that back. They're still a great place to uh, buy your silver and gold. If they weren't, I wouldn't have them on the site. Next up today, backyard food production. Hey, look, you want to turn your backyard into a food production machine? Get on over to BackyardFoodProduction.com and check out Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD called Growing Your Groceries. And she'll show you how to do just that. Everything that you need to know about how to produce carbohydrate crops, vegetable crops, protein, eggs, meat, livestock, how to slaughter rabbits, it's all in one place on one DVD. Get yourself a copy. It's an instruction manual for food self-sufficiency. Next up, remember to check out TSP Copper for some really cool copper rounds. And last but not least, do uh, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at about 20 cents an episode. Military and law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics, if you email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com before you join, um, I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. With that, I've got the housekeeping. Keeping wrapped up, I'm ready to bring Jackie on. Uh, Jackie and her husband, Will, are lifetime homesteaders. They live on a self-reliant 120-acre uh, wilderness homestead in northern Minnesota. They are happily off-grid and raise about 90% of their own food. Jackie's a writer and contributes regularly to Backwoods Home Magazine. Um, she is really, really one of their best-known authors, and she has a column called Ask Jackie, uh, which you, I, I learned tremendous amounts of information that I share with this audience all the time. So in a way, Jackie's been one of your teachers without you guys knowing it likely for, for quite a while because I do uh, take many publications, but one is definitely Backwoods Home, and she's somebody I always read everything she has. She's got two great books, Growing and Canning Your Own Food and Jackie Clay's Pantry Cookbook, and she's here with us today. Excuse me, still nursing the uh, the throat. Uh, but she's here with us today to talk about setting up a homestead and living a truly off-grid life. And with that, hey, Jackie, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, um, you're no stranger to anybody that reads Backwoods Home Magazine. You've been writing for them for a very long time. But for maybe some of our folks that maybe are not readers of, of that magazine, could you just tell people a little bit about yourself um, kind of your background and how you got into home studying and, 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 and writing for a publication like Backwoods Home. Well, I've been a lifetime homesteader since I was about three years old. And uh, I've had my own homestead since I was 18. So it's been a lifelong process. And we've always been on the road towards self-reliancy. We're not there yet, but we're a lot closer than we used to be. Uh, about uh, 1996, I sent an article into Backwoods Home Magazine, and they printed it. 
and I've been writing for them pretty much exclusively ever since. I write on homesteading, uh, canning, gardening, animals, uh, self-reliant living, preparedness, and I've been uh, doing some books. I've got several books that Backwoods Home uh, Magazine has published, and I've been writing a question and answer column. I asked Jackie since uh, 99 where people can write in and... I'll answer any question on low-tech homesteading. I also do a blog twice a week on the magazine's website. So I keep very busy. <laughs> you know what I love about your writing is when I read what you're doing or when you're giving somebody advice, it's very evident that you're dealing with a person who lives this lifestyle every single day. There's a lot of people that write about or teach about homesteading, but they do it kind of from a, a one level off, if you know what I mean. They're involved with some of it, but it's not really their lifestyle, where this is who you really are and have been, as you said, since you were three years of age. Yeah, that's right. I think my, my first interest was compost. My grandmother had a compost heap, and that was in the city of Detroit. She had three lots, and she had a very big homestead on those three lots in Detroit. So I developed a, an interest in homesteading from the get-go. So, and like you say, I've you know I've done it all my life. So it's not something that I read about or I study about and answer people's questions. It is our life. And you know that brings up an interesting point. You mentioned Detroit. I get every day from people that want to be kind of out of the out of the metro messes of the world, saying where's the best place to live in the United States. And I always pretty much say. Look for what you want and then, you know, find a place that matches that. But what are your thoughts on kind of some of the better areas to live as a homesteader in this country? Well, usually the best areas to homestead are the least populated. Uh, in my opinion, if you're going to have a, a true self-reliant homestead, it's a good idea to be a couple hours away from a major city just because in case something would happen, you're a little safer that far away. Land is cheaper, taxes are cheaper. There's usually less building restrictions. But you're 100% right in, you know, people deciding what they really want out of a homestead. You know, not everybody would be comfortable homesteading in a fly-in homestead in interior Alaska. Uh, some people would not want a homestead off of a paved road, and I don't criticize them. Everyone has their own ideas. For us, you know, what we've always looked at is a remote area, minimal access, usually bad weather somehow, cold winter, lots of snow, <laughs> something something that would keep other people from wanting to be where you are. Uh, you've got to have a place that you can grow a garden successfully. So the Mojave Desert probably wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, it, it qualifies uh, as remote and people not wanting to be there, but it doesn't qualify as giving you the resources you need. Well, it depends on what resources you need. Every family has different things they need. Our, our big thing is we want to be off-grid, not just a little off-grid, but really off-grid. Uh, other people wouldn't want to be off-grid. Uh, some people need to be near a job. Some people need to have cable TV. You know, it all depends on what your family's lifestyle is and what you're willing to give up as a family. Not just one person say, well, I want to move to interior Alaska and, and the other member saying, not on your life. I got to watch football every weekend and I've got to go to the mall and this and that, you know. <laughs> so it's a highly personal decision, you know. Yeah. Why was it so important for you guys that you wanted to, to really be off-grid? I mean, there's people out there that have their homes off-grid, but they're not necessarily uh, there by, by geography. They're there by choice. But you really wanted to be in a place where that was the way that it was going to be no matter what. what. What was the driving force behind that? Well, for me personally, it's, it's a lifelong uh, 
craving to be in the wilderness. When I was two years old, my dad and mom used to take me tent camping in a little tent way up in the wilderness. And ever since I was little, every time dad had a vacation, we'd go way remote and camp and fish. And mom would show me wild plants that you could eat. And dad would show me how to track animals. And, you know, it was great. It was the way I grew up. Uh, and I, I just uh, just kept with that all my whole life. Now, my two sisters had absolutely no interest in this at all. So, like I said, it's a real personal decision. I would never be happy living on a on a road or living in town. In you know, it, it, I'm not saying everyone needs to run to the wilderness. There would be no wilderness if everyone did that. Sure. But for me, that's what I need. Gotcha. So um, when you're kind of you made that choice of where you want to be, uh, to be somewhat at least self-sufficient, how much land do you feel that a person needs to have? To to be quite self-sufficient, I, I'd say you need at least a couple acres because to be food self-sufficient, you need at least an acre that you could grow food in. Besides that, if you want to have uh, meat or milk, you're going to need dairy goats or a cow, and they're going to at least need some pasture. If you want an orchard, if you want a berry patch, all of that takes room. And there are a few people that are quite food self-sufficient on much less land than that, but it really, really takes a lot of experience and thought and hard work to do that. Do you feel that, like, when you live in a really, really in a wilderness area like you do, where, okay, my land might go to here to here, but if I'm somewhere where there's a lot of public land, you know, Bob Marshall Wilderness or something like that, and having that, that wilderness resource there that I can go out and use, that kind of reduces how much land I would need as compared to being in a more like, let's say, a farm community where when I look out my window, I see neighbors on all four sides of me, even though there's space, that I'm going to need more land there because I don't have maybe the hunting resources, the gathering resources, et cetera, that I have in a wilderness environment. Yeah, very true. Yeah, even we've got 120 acres here. And besides that, there's state and federal land adjoining us. So we also have a lot more available land than we actually need. When when you are shopping for a piece of land to set up your homestead, what are some of the most important things you need to be looking for? I think the number one thing is, does the land suit what you need it to produce? When I looked for a homestead, when we bought this place, I think I looked at about 100 pieces of ground. And realtors' descriptions and photos are always the very best there is because they want to sell you the land. But I looked at swamp. I looked at land that was total bedrock. It never would produce a garden without tremendous work. I looked at land that had no pasture available without cutting acres and acres of big trees. And we wanted livestock, of course. Uh, I looked at land that had a couple acres of high ground and the rest was all swamp, and that would never do because it's hard to put a septic system in. It's hard to build a garden. Uh, You need to make sure the land you look at is going to support your lifestyle. We always looked for land that had no neighbors. And even relatively populated areas, you could find land that maybe it has big farms adjoining it or it's backed up against a state forest or a game preserve, something that somebody's not going to build right exactly next to you. Uh, I understand that, yes. That's always been my concern. Even if I have neighbors on one side or the other, the people behind me, I don't know why that bugs me so much, but I I just don't want anybody moving in behind me for some reason. (laughs) You feel that step on your uh, back. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, For us, we've always tried 
to find the building regulations before we've moved. Some areas, if you, if, we've always built our own buildings. You know, we haven't hired somebody to do it. So some areas, the building codes, even in a remote area, are outrageous. You've got to have a building inspector. You have to have a permit for this. You build a doghouse, you have to have a permit. You dig an outhouse, you have to have a permit. Then you have to have the, the inspector come back when you install the plumbing and the electric, and all of this costs a lot of money, plus all of the regulations just give me a real fit. So we've always looked for an area that had minimal building restrictions. Yeah, and I think another uh, big advantage when we're like out in the remote areas is even just not having somebody calling the freaking authorities every time you do something they don't like. Even when you're doing something you're permitted to do, which it bugs me to even have to say that that way, but you know what I'm saying? Just not like not when people can't see something, they'll complain about it. And it's sad that we live in a world today where lots of people complain about things that no one used to complain about, like a garden in a front yard or something like that. Yeah, and there's recently been court cases of a woman that uh, did plant a garden in her front yard, and she was arrested and taken to jail over having a garden in her front yard. She was later acquitted, and they they just kind of laughed it off. But she gained nationwide notoriety over that. Well, you'll like and, this, Jackie. I know you're talking about Julie Bass. And mm -hmm. she was in a place somewhere in Michigan, Central Falls, or I don't remember what it was. But the, the audience of this show um, went on a phone blitz and called the city and said, you know, basically, you guys are repressing a lady for a front yard garden. And we had planned the phone blitz on a Friday. And we ended up having to do that on a Monday. And, and you just will love this because a city that had the time to go arrest a woman for a garden in her front yard was so broke that they're on a four-day-a-week work schedule to save money, and they can't even <laughs> afford to have the city government open on Friday, but they have time to harass a person. Yeah, unfortunately, it's the way of the, the country now. And that's one reason that I always have wanted to live in an area where there were no neighbors, one way or the other, because <laughs> it seems like if somebody's there, they're complaining about something, your dog barked, uh, your generator was too loud, there was too many cars in your driveway. There's always some complaint. Uh, I think it's a form of stress in, in this day's world is that when people are all stressed out, they just have to complain about everything. So, yeah, we want no neighbors. And it's not because we don't like people. It's just because they could be such a pain. <laughs> well, and I've noticed that, like, in places we move, we've always tried to have space, but we've also always had people around us. It seems like if you move into a place, and let's say it's a, a fairly well-spaced-out area, there's about 15 houses in the community, let's say something about that size, there's always going to be at least one out of that group of people that's going to be the pain in the butt. And dang it, if I don't always end up with them living directly next door to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it seems that way. And, uh, you know, that's why we've always wanted to be away, you know, and it's – not because we're growing pot in our garden or, or selling drugs or whatever. You know, it's just that there are so many aggravations that you can dodge by just simply not having somebody right next to you. Absolutely. Like I said, if people can't see it, they don't usually complain about it. So yeah. once I found my place and, you know, just so people get what you're talking about with homesteading, you're talking about going out and finding a place that's already set up. You're talking about find a piece of land and turn it into a homestead. Which, before I go there, it reminds me, didn't you recently, like within the last several years or so, sell a place and, and start out again? Yeah, uh, we were in uh, Montana, and my folks were getting quite elderly, and I could see the writing on the wall there. Yep. And I had, I had lived in... Um, Minnesota before and knew the state real well. My oldest son lives here, and we decided we couldn't buy enough land in Montana to support the kind of homestead we wanted. Uh, a lot of people have the wrong idea about Montana. They want to go to Montana, live in the mountains, live off the land, but you can't buy a small amount of acreage in Montana. There are only uh, big ranches, 
and big ranches that have been bought up by developers and cut into 20-acre remote uh, subdivisions. So we had a 20 acres way up in the mountains, but we did have neighbors, and we couldn't afford to buy more land. So we decided, because land was cheaper here in northern Minnesota, we'd sell there and find a remote place here. And so that's what we did. Yeah, we ended up... we were here a year, and then we inherited my elderly parents. Oh, I got you. I, I just remembered, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but I remember reading an episode, an edition of Backwoods Home and seeing, you know, by Jackie Clay's homestead. And I, I remember thinking, wow, that was a lot of work that went into that. And uh, I, I kind of understand what it's like now as we're looking to move again ourselves. Um, so then you, you relocated, and this like, leads great right into the next question. Once you get that, that, that piece of land you want a homestead, where, where do you start? Is it, you know, build the house first, get the food production in first? What's, what's kind of step one? <laughs> yeah, all of the above. Yeah, I figured you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, actually shelter is the first thing. When we moved on this place, this place was totally a raw piece of uh, timber land that had been cut over and was regrowth. And we came in here in February with a travel trailer and an 8 by 10 fish house that we attached for a living room. And we had to have a bulldozer bulldoze us in because we're a mile and a half off the road. So uh, shelter is the number one thing. And what a lot of people do, instead of trying to just hurry up and build the house, is build a small shelter the size of a garage or even, you know, like a yard storage building. I've seen people that built like a, a 10 by 12, just basically like one of those barn-shaped storage buildings with a floor in it and, and just used that for shelter while they built their house. Uh, living in a tent sucks. I mean, it's great oh, yeah. for camping. <laughs> you know, when you have four rainy days in a row and, and you're drenched and your clothes are damp and your bedding's damp and you haven't been able to get out or, and move around much, it, it's it's nasty. So some type of a hard-sided shelter first and then go ahead and build a house. Yeah, I, I After, would concur with that. And I think your method of bringing in a travel trailer is in a room is a good, quick, you know, you've got something. Yeah, it was a you know fixer upper travel trailer. It was thirty thirty two feet long. Uh, the floor had rotted out. Uh, it really needed a lot of work. We did that in Montana, so it, it was ready to camp. But do not plan on camping in a travel trailer in the winter in a cold climate because <laughs> the pipes freeze. Uh, the toilet doesn't work, you know, the the holding tank freezes solid. You cannot, you can use it as a hard-sided tent, let me put it that way. But yeah. you cannot use use all of the uh, facilities. The same with a mobile home. Uh, we, after we inherited my elderly parents, um, mom was in a wheelchair, dad was in a walker. What we did is my oldest son found us a free mobile home. And for $500, we had it brought in, and it gave us enough room for the wheelchair, the walker, and extra people. But you cannot, there again, when you're living off-grid, you can't use the furnace, you can't use the toilet, you know, you can't use the plumbing because nothing works when you don't have power. (laughs) So there again, it was a 72-foot-long tent. Yeah, and let me say conversely, as a southern boy, if you bring that mobile home or the mobile home off grid down here, or specifically a travel trailer uh, down here, when it's 115 degrees in the shade in the summertime, <laughs> you you can't cool it either. It's like being inside a tin can. So those things yeah. are like you say, they're like one step above a tent, but not a huge step above a tent. Yeah, they're they're a temporary shelter. But it, it gives you enough shelter that you can go ahead and build your house because it's it's really hard to, like I say, camp in a tent while you're building a house. It takes a lot longer than you think it would. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet it does. Now, I think you have done what, if I was going to try to do this from a 
from like a roughneck off-grid homesteading thing, I would have to, to concede needs to be done, and that is you've chosen northern climates. Um, we can heat with wood, but I haven't found anything off-grid that can really cool a place well in the southern United States. So I think that maybe is an advantage for homesteaders that want to live this off-grid lifestyle to, to live in a place where it's more important to heat than to cool. Yeah, either that or choose lots and lots of insulation. Yeah. You know, it, it's amazing how much, in cold or hot climates, how much uh, a little extra insulation helps. It's just unbelievable. And, you know, we've got a, a couple ceiling fans because, believe it or not, you know, this summer it got it, you know, in the high 90s here. Sure. And we're able to run the ceiling fans, you know, with our battery storage bank. But uh, you certainly could not run an air conditioner, no matter what. <laughs> no, I have yet to find an effective solar-powered air conditioner. I think anybody that comes up with a legitimate one is going to be a multi-billionaire. Um, and I, I just don't think it's feasible or possible, honestly, just based on my understanding of photovoltaics and, and, and basic physics. Um, but, I mean, that has always been a huge thing. Like when I was in Montana this year up at Ben Falk's place, and or not Montana, Vermont, I don't know why I said Montana, because you said Montana. Um, I, I can see myself living up there without an air conditioner and being relatively comfortable. Uh, when I think about that in a place like, you know, in and around, you know, central northern Texas, it just doesn't seem like – I understand why the population of the south was so small until about 1900. Yeah, well, we lived in New Mexico on the high plains, and it was plenty warm there, too. And we lived in an old homestead house, you know, it was a – a uh, lady's house that she had passed away and we bought. It had been empty for years. Uh, and it really wasn't that bad. There were trees around it, thank God. The trees really helped. A little shade helped. We did have quite a breeze there, so you could open the windows and, it, you know, it'd be hot breeze, but it had helped. Now, you are off-grid, but you are not completely deprived of all technology, right? So what type of a, of a system did you put in place to be able to run ceiling fans and basic stuff like that, lighting, et cetera? Okay. Uh, we've got uh, two Harbor Freight three-panel solar setups hooked together. So I think we've got 45 watts total there. Okay. What? Two forty-five watt. Okay, I'm asking my husband. We have two forty-five watt systems piggybacked together, and then we have six golf car batteries in the basement. They're six volt, and they store the power from that. We also have a generator that we run when we're going to use the washing machine, our deep well pump, uh, power tools, things like that. Uh, so every time the generator is kicking on, it's also automatically charging our batteries. So between the solar panels and the generator, you know, it's just a, a uh, 4,000 watt uh, gas generator. It's not a, a big China diesel or anything. So we run the, run the generator. It charges the batteries, and the, the sun charges them when we don't have the generator on. We're really, really frugal about electricity. We don't watch TV much. We don't uh, use a microwave. We don't have any big electric appliances in the house. All of our lights are CFLs. So we do run the ceiling fan, but we don't run it continually. Uh, we, I, you know, I've got a, a desktop and a laptop computer. There again, we don't keep them on all the time. We've got them all on a, a bar so we can snap them off. So we're, we're real miserly about our use of power. Do you, do you have Internet access? Yes, yes. What, what do you do yeah, for my that? Bo my, my, bo my boss made me get a satellite dish. We've got HughesNet. <laughs> yeah, he twisted my arm and made me come into the 21st century. You Was know, that so. Dave? Dave Duffy. Yeah, that? that was Dave Dave Duffy at the <laughs> magazine. Yes. So, 
he he wanted me to blog, and I didn't have the faintest idea what a blog was. It sounded like a fatal illness, but <laughs> he twisted my arm and made me do it. So <laughs> I learned to blog. Now I know how to do some of these things. I still don't know anything about computers, but I play at it. Now, I know this. If you want to know anything about cooking or canning, ask Jackie. So you're off-grid. Are you cooking with gas? Are you using a wood stove? What's your primary way of cooking and you know, heat for your canning operation and, and all of that stuff? Okay. Well, we heat our house with a wood stove. I also have a wood kitchen range. So when it's cool, we use the wood kitchen range. And when it's hot, I or if I'm in a hurry, I use the propane kitchen range. So we have a little of both. So you have an either-or proposition. So do you guys have like a really big propane reserve, or are you just using smaller tanks? Or we've got a thousand-gallon uh, propane okay. tank, and luckily it doesn't cost us any rent to rent it. So the company comes and. We don't we don't keep it full because we can't afford it at this point in life. But <laughs> we we usually fill it up this time of the year, and then uh, not fill it up, but we usually put you know like four or five hundred gallons in it, and that'll last us a year or more. You know, you bring up an interesting point there. Say we can't afford to keep the tank full, and that that says something about the way you guys are doing this. There's a lot of people emailing me all the time, going, Jack, we just don't have enough money to live off grid or to you know to to, to live this way. And you've proven that you can do this without a lot of money, right? Yeah, if it took a lot of money, we wouldn't be able to do it because <laughs> everything that we do on our homestead is pay-as-you-go. We built the house in increments a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, we're, Will's building, my husband Will, is building a barn now, a big barn with a hayloft and the whole shebang. And, you know, we save up a little bit of money and then buy some material and save up a little more money and buy some material. The first year we had built our log house, I didn't have enough money for insulation and shingles on the roof, so we threw a big construction tarp over the whole thing and went all winter with no insulation and no shingles. And all winter I saved up a little bit of money, a little bit of money, and in the spring we could afford half of the roof. So we got you know, our sandwich roof with the insulation in it and shingles, and then I saved up money all summer, and then in the fall I had enough money to do the other half of the house. <laughs> so, yeah, we do it a little bit as as we can afford it. And you're, you, you know, between the two of you, the income that you do have, is it primarily from writing for Backwoods, or do you, you know, writing books, or do you have other sources of income? Uh, I do have a VA check. My late husband was 100% service-connected, uh, disabled, and when he passed away from Agent Orange, I do get you know survivor's benefits from that. But that and my my writing is our sole income. So you really are doing it on a shoestring, uh, and you know I think there's a lot of people that can can learn from that because I have like a really good friend of mine that's always telling me how he wants to live and telling me he doesn't have an, enough money to live that way, and basically he wants to live like a broke redneck. And I'm like, well, Brad, there's like a billion broke rednecks out there living that way every day, and they're broke. So I, I think some people are like, I don't know, I make a joke out of it and call their saving up to be broke. A lot of people are afraid to cut the umbilical cord with civilization. You know, they want to live off-grid, they want to grow their own food, but they don't ever jump off the dock. <laughs> you know, they just want to hang on, and they're a little afraid that they can't make it. So if you don't try, you don't ever lose you know they don't want to lose they don't want to not succeed and they're just afraid to jump off the dock and go do it now i've read that you guys are producing about 90 percent of your own food um yep. and kind of talk us through the, the 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 logic path you have to follow to be able to do something like that because that's that's a heck of a lot more than a backyard suburban garden so what are some of your key crops maybe key livestock that allow you to hit that that level well it's something that didn't happen all at once. When we first moved on this raw land, I, you know, we had to cut down little popple trees and pull up roots and dig up raspberry patches in order to have even just a small garden. So the first year we were here, our garden only measured probably 20 by 50 feet. And every year we went bigger and bigger and bigger until we've got about an acre in our main garden now 
And then we've got about, oh, probably three quarters of an acre of young orchard and another probably half an acre that's all berry patch. And they're all fenced with a six-foot fence to keep the deer out because the deer will eat more than we do. But uh, we started out raising the main things, you know, was potatoes, carrots, tomatoes. And then green beans was our next addition. And, you know, squash. We try to raise things that I can can and or store in, in the basement. We've got a root cellar in the basement. And I can pretty much everything from venison, you know, we've uh, to pork chops to spaghetti sauce of about five different flavors. So uh, we grow not every year, but we grow grain. And when we harvest that, usually that's good for a few years because we harvest enough that we don't have to grow it every year. Some crops we don't grow every year. If I've got a whole lot of one crop canned up in the basement, we'll substitute and grow something else the next year. So we try to keep two years' worth of food canned up and stored in the basement all the time. And the reason for that is once in a while you'll get a year where you have a terrific drought and heat. All over the country this year there was drought and just excessive heat, and everything just dried up. You know, some years it'll be too cold and rainy and things won't grow. So you can't depend on your garden producing everything you want every single year. Some years some things do wonderful. Some years they don't do at all. Like this year we had a late frost in the spring, and it nailed all of the blossoms of all of the wild fruits in our area. So there was no wild blueberries, no pin cherries, no wild plums, nothing. But we gathered up stuff last year, and I canned it. So we've got enough to make it through, you know, next year and maybe the year after. So. Well, I know that like that's one of your big things is canning. How high would you rate that on a skill that homesteaders need to have? Is the ability to know how to can? Right up there at the top. If you like eating. <laughs> We, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I mean, one of the big questions I get from people all the time is about, you know, pressure canning versus uh, steam canning. And I'd like your thoughts on this. As to me, a steam canner is a big pot with a loose-fitting lid, and a pressure canner is a big pot with a tight-fitting lid that allows you to pressurize the steam. Is there any reason you can't just leave the lid loose on your pressure canner and use it for steam canning for the things that you can steam can? Is there really a need to have two separate canners to do those two separate No. Parts. No, the reason most people have two separate canners is just because a water bath canner is a lot lighter and easier to handle than a, a pressure canner. Absolutely. Pressure canners, because they're under pressure, they're heavier, you know, they're usually aluminum, and they're heavy. So you definitely can just set the lid on there without having the weight or the petcock closed and not clamp the lid down and it'll definitely water bath for you. But most people find it's a lot more convenient to just use the lighter water bath canner when you're going to water bath and then use the heavier pressure canner when you need it. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, to me, it's just it's another thing you need, but there always is the two is one and one is none factor there as well. Um, another question I have for you um, is... I've been looking into doing canning some pumpkin, and I've read conflicting information. Uh, it seems like it was okay to do, and then all of a sudden it became not okay to do. Um, I guess the government changes things, so they think physics change. But your thoughts on canning pumpkin, are there any special concerns? I understand it's due to the density uh, of the material. Well, it used to be that we would puree our cooked pumpkin or squash, and then it would be all set to make pies out of or used for baking, but uh, the government has decided that pumpkin and uh, squash make too dense a puree, and there's always the chance that the center of the jar might not heat up sufficiently for safe processing temperatures. So they now advise us to can our pumpkin and squash in chunks, and then when you want to use it, you just drain the liquid off and mash the chunks, and you're ready to can. So that was the thought on that. 
Do, do you think that that is a legitimate concern, or is it just Big Brother being Big Brother, or? Well, to tell you the truth, I can pumpkin for years that way. <laughs> I never poisoned anyone. I can't. I cannot advise people to do it that sure. way. But um, yeah. There's the official answer, and then there's the practical. The official answer is you, you better can it in chunks. Chunks. Okay. Because I mean, I I just so we you know we I know canning and all, but we had just we grew a ton of pumpkin this year. And I'm like, we need to can some of this stuff because it's way more than we can use fresh. Um, and and I was looking for a good canning recipe, and I kind of ran into that. And I'm like, I don't remember this being an issue when I used to help my grandmother can stuff. You know, that was just like yeah. you mashed it up, you stuck it in there, and then when you wanted to make a pie, it was pretty much instant pie filling. Um, and it was yeah. easy. it was really easy that way. So um, your thoughts on uh, Tadler lids? I love them. I love Tadler lids. Tadler lids are wonderful. <laughs> and, you know, re- being able to reuse anything in my book is great. And the fact that the the Tatler lids are not only reusable, but if you break one, warp one, crack one, they'll replace it for free. I mean, I think that's about as good as it gets. Absolutely. Are there maybe some things, like a person that's getting started canning as a new skill, some things that are the easier things to do that maybe should be where they would start, or is it pretty much all the same? Oh, no, it's like anything else. There's always easier things and harder things. Uh of course, you know, your jams and jellies and pickles are a real easy place to start. But water bath canning is very limited. It's only for fruit and jellies and jams and pickles. You cannot can any vegetables or meats with a water bath canner and be safe. And that's one time that I agree with the government. I think that people that try to can green beans in a water bath canner or venison are really playing Russian roulette there because they could easily get botulism. Yep. It's a it's a rare organism, but it can kill you deader than heck, and I just don't like gambling with that. I concur. But uh, pressure canning is so easy, and people are so afraid of it. They hear the horror stories from oh, my aunt had a pressure canner blow up and it sent stuff up in the ceiling and this and that. And a modern pressure canner, I don't know how you could possibly blow one up, even if you wanted to. There are so many safety devices on them now, I don't think it's possible. So if you can read directions and tell time, I I don't see why anyone would have the slightest bit of problem pressure canning. And then... The world is open to you then. There's so many thousands of things you can put up. Uh, If you walk through the aisles in the store and you see all this different food in cans, almost all of it you can can at home and it tastes so much better and you know what is in it. You don't think you're going to glow in the dark or, you know, eat chemicals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, I think it lets you start taking you know opportunity buying to a new level. So if you go to a farmer's market or a CSA or something like that, and there's some real heavy abundance and a guy's trying to sell it all, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to take it home. Uh, whether it's anything from 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 meat to vegetables, you can take advantage of that and buy more than you normally would be able to take it home and can it, and then have that long term storage capability. Well, and not only that, but you can buy meat by the quarter or by the half from a local farmer a lot cheaper than you can buy imported beef or pork from the store and know that it's healthy farm-raised meat and then can up a lot of it don't just freeze it but can it up because once it's canned it's good forever you don't need to worry about freezer burn and it's already cooked so all you have to do is heat it up a little bit and you're ready to eat dinner it's so convenient that way and, and I mean, a lot also, of things you can do with that, right, that are like, you know, it's kind of like instant stew, add add potatoes, celery, and carrots. Yeah, it's open a few jars, dump, 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 stir it up and heat it, and you're in business. And not only that, but even uh, local markets, a lot of times you can get real killer sales on things like that are in season, like turkeys, when they're using them for a loss leader around Thanksgiving, or ham before Easter, 
sometimes in the summertime, hamburger you can buy really cheap. And instead of just buying two pounds for dinner, buy 10 pounds and can up nine pounds of it. You know, then when you want to have tacos, bam, you've got the meat all cooked. You just heat it up, add some spices, throw it in your taco shells, and you're in business. Did you say turkey? Because I really hadn't thought of that, but you're right. They put, you know, those birds on sale. Yeah, 39 cents a pound. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Because who goes in and buys 10 turkeys? Jackie Clay does. Yeah. (laughs) I fill up the shopping cart, sure. And we raise turkeys, but, you know, uh, it just is... You know, if it's if it's on a really big, huge sale, you know, I'll step right in there and buy some. Sure. Any food is better than no food, trust me. And you guys do have a root cellar. I guess that's where you keep most of your canned goods then? Yes. It's it's just part of our basement. It's an unheated piece of our basement that's uh, separate. And it's lined with uh, two-foot-deep shelves. And uh, they're all plumb full, and we love it. Yeah, it's something I really miss about northern climates as well. With the soils down here, uh, clay and, and things like that, it's uh, it's very rare that a person down here has a basement. And we have these things called tornadoes all the time where, you know, it would be a good idea to have one. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, you know, even in southern climates, you could certainly have a, a root cellar in your basement. And the main thing is lots and lots of insulation and ventilation so you can keep air moving through it. I mean, I've even known people that had a small air conditioner in their root cellar, you know, oh. down south. To turn it into a cheese cave, basically. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, you have a couple books out. Let's talk a little bit about those as we wrap up here. Your first one is growing and canning your own food, and I'm going to step out on a limb and tell and, and guess that's going to tell us about growing and canning our own food, right? Boy, that was a very, very good guess, <laughs> and. Uh, let me say that it's the most complete canning book that there is out there today. Uh, most canning books also cover dehydrating and freezing, and they also are full of fufu recipes for canning, where you can can three or four pints of brandied peaches or, you know, fufu foods. <laughs> sure. And my book is full of wholesome, tasty tested recipes for canning everything, including meals in a jar, where you just open a jar and dump it out, heat it up, and you've got a meal. So, yeah, and, let and me it say, also tells I, I was being a little bit funny there when I said, let me guess what it's about, because I do have a copy of your book, and it is, in my opinion, the best book on canning I've ever seen. Yeah, and coupled with that is how to grow everything, you know, from strawberries to rabbits to goats, you know, just just a brief overview on how to actually grow the food, take care of it, and how to can it up afterwards. And then you're somewhat of a cook, too. So you have a Jackie Clay's Pantry Cookbook. You want to maybe give us one or two teasers of some recipes in there? Well, the Pantry Cookbook, you know, is a little bit misnamed. Dave realizes that now too late, but it's... Uh, a book primarily for using your long-term storage pantry foods, your homegrown foods, and your home canned foods. So there's recipes in there that include, you know, using powdered butter, powdered sour cream, uh, powdered eggs, and these are all uh, family heirloom recipes. There's no foo-foo hard-to-make recipes that you can't find uh, an ingredient Every ingredient in there should be in your pantry. So they're, they're recipes that my mother used, my grandmother, uh, my great-grandmother. Some of them are 100-year-old and plus recipes. So, And they're all ones we've used, too. So you've got a wide variety from bread to stews to soup and roasts, just a little bit of everything, lots of desserts, donuts, crackers, you name it, it's in there. Awesome. And, of course, you write uh, monthly for Backwoods Home, and I want to remind 
our our listeners that we have a special agreement with Dave that if you get a subscription to Backwoods Home, there's a list of books, and I believe one of your books is on the list where people can pick a free book with their subscription when they sign up. So I want to make sure people know that, and you can go to backwoodshome.com. Uh, and read Jackie's blog and read many but not all of the articles that you've written for the magazine because you guys put some of the articles online and some you reserve only for the people that take the uh, the, the actual subscription. Great. And, uh, man, I've had, a, I've had a great time talking to you, Jackie. I know you're nursing a cold like I am, uh, so we got through this together. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. And I'll give you kind of a final thought here for people. If people are considering trying to become more self-reliant and you could tell them just one or two things to kind of get them going, what would it be? Planning, 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 planning. <laughs> That's always the most important thing, you know, is... If, if you plan well, you can always make it work. It's not always going to be easy. It's always going to be a lot of hard work. And take longer than you think it's going to take. Have patience and plan like crazy. All right, wise words. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Jackie Clay. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TV. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.